I'm Alan Cornett, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. In this episode, I talk to Garden and Gun Magazine senior editor C.J. Lotes, one of the contributors to the new book, Southern Women, More Than 100 Stories of Innovators, Artists, and Icons. C.J. was recently in Lexington to promote the book, and she graciously agreed to sit down for an interview. C.J. talks about the new book, important Southern women in her own life, including adopted Kentucky poet Ada Lamone, and her upcoming article on grits in the South. We also chat about influential chefs Weta Michael and Sean Brock. Plus, CJ discusses poorer man's pappy and explains her plot to spread a childhood Halloween tradition nationwide. Hear all that and more in this episode of the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Enjoy! I am here with C.J. Lotes at the Summit in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to the Bluegrass State. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So have you been to Kentucky much before? I have been to Kentucky. I've been to Louisville and Lexington as well, Mm -hmm. but I need to get up here more. This is really fun to be here. Tell us what what you're doing uh, on this trip. Well, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm the senior editor at Garden and Gun Magazine. And we have a new book, our fifth book, which is Southern Women, More Than 100 Stories of Innovators, Artists, and Icons. Um, That's from the editors at Garden and Gun. And we're here, we're going to do a little book signing and event at Draper James. Yeah, here at the Summit. summit. Mm -hmm. And you're appearing with Marian Eves, I think? Yes, um, the first female master distiller. So she'll be there with us tonight, uh, which will be an exciting time to talk about Southern women and some of the really cool things that they're doing in the South. And then you're on to Louisville. And then on to Louisville. So you're getting the grand tour. (laughs) There's more to Kentucky than just Lexington and Louisville. That's true. Seeing two of the high points. Absolutely. There's a lot to see in both of those places. Um, So tell me about how this book was conceptualized. Why, why a book on Southern women? Well, years ago, we did a package about Southern women that Alison Glock, wonderful writer, wrote an essay about Southern women. And it continues to be one of the most talked about garden and gun pieces. So out of all the stories that we tell, we, realize, we were realizing that there were, there's enough there for a book. Um, starting with that essay, and Allison Glock wrote the foreword to this book. So it, we just felt like it was a really good time to elevate what Southern women are doing. And we also wanted to dispel the idea that there's one way to be a Southern woman or some of the unfair tropes about magnolias and moonlight or Southern bells. There's many, many ways to represent the South as a woman. So you've got a hundred women in this book write-ups and interviews and some are sort of self-reflections by people who wrote their own their own piece 
And you touched on this, that there's, there's really an extraordinary diversity of not only the kinds of things they do, but just where they're from and the kind of people they are. So what makes a woman Southern, or maybe what makes a Southern woman? What binds them together? I think the word strength, you'll, you'll hear that a lot, that Southern women are strong. I find that many Southern women are curious about the world, about other people, that they're hardworking. Um, the South as a region, we could include all the way down to Florida, over to Texas. In the magazine, we even include Oklahoma. We, of course, include Kentucky. We go all the way up to the Mason-Dixon line in Maryland. The regional boundaries are, are part of it, but there are Southern women expats all over the world, mm -hmm. so they're also Southern. Um, but I think that strength and that curiosity um, are some important specifics, but those are broad enough things that it includes many, many different people. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating collection, and some, of course some Kentucky uh, ladies make, the, make the, the cut, make an appearance in there. Mention Marianne Eves, who you're appearing with tonight at the time of this recording. You're uh, going to be meeting with her over there. And Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn. And you've got somebody here from Lexington, Amanda Matthews of Prometheus Foundry. So that's, that was a little bit of a curveball to, because you don't see a lot of bronze casters who, uh, who are celebrated, but that was, a, I thought, a wonderful inclusion. Well, we wanted to make sure to include artists and also um, different story formats. So you'll see there's interviews, there are personal essays and odes. So it's, it's full of surprises for readers, not only in the subject matter, but in the way that the book is presented. Tell me about some Southern women who've meant something to you. I, I've seen reference to your great-grandmothers in some things written about you. I'd, I'd love to hear about them or anybody else who's meant a lot to you. I was fortunate enough to have all four of my great-grandmothers in my life. So all four of them lived into their 90s, and I love their names. I think they're sort of a neat time capsule of that time period, but I had Millie, Emma, Nina, and Opal. Wonderful. And Opal was probably the one I was closest to, and she grew up and lived in rural Missouri, southern Missouri. And even when she was in her 90s, we could find her moving rocks in front of her <laughs> house. We would drive up, and there she would be just moving rocks because they were there and they needed to be moved. Absolutely. And she was pretty clear-headed. That was just a thing to be done, so she did it. And she had a farm. She had uh, chickens. And I remember we would help make sure that her acre, acreage was mowed and she found out what she thought was how much they were making to mow her, her yard and she said, well, that's highway robbery, I need to buy me a riding mower. And we only told her that they made $20 and of course they were making <laughs> a lot more than that. But she was just a stub, st stubborn, um, hardworking woman and it's funny, Missouri, similar to Kentucky, is one of those states that people sort of debate if it's southern or not. but. A lot of the traits, strength and curiosity, all of those things that we talked about before I see in Opal, who was from Southern Missouri. So I would say that in many ways, she was a strong Southern woman. Mm -hmm. Missouri, 
Missouri's so, it's a large state and it has a lot of, it has a lot of diversity within it. I think, I think there are parts of Missouri that are very much Southern. I lived in the Kansas City area for a while. I might debate some of that as to how I, that felt pretty Midwestern. But I think that there are parts of Missouri that are absolutely Southern. Right. And there's, you know, all Southerners deal with stereotypes. And there's certainly some stereotypes about the Ozarks that people deal uh, with. Yes, certainly. <laughs> well, as someone from Appalachia, I, we share a lot of the same stereotypes. Mountain people sometimes get a hard rap. Absolutely. But. I think when when you visit those places, Appalachia or the Ozarks, and you realize there's good food and really nice people and really neat art and literature and beautiful landscape that I think that people just need to visit and kind of make their own. Well, the South, the South is definitely very strong, despite the stereotypes, as a as a place where writers come from. Some writers in the book, certainly legendary writers like Flannery O'Connor and Eudora Welty, and then more modern writers too. Uh, Kentucky is blessed with a, with a lot of strong writers, but uh, it's interesting in discussing what is Southern and what isn't, I guess. And one of the things about that book is that you can include a lot of things under that umbrella, I think, and accurately. So who are some women today that some Southern women who inspire you and that you look up to? Well, one of my very favorite is a Kentuckian who's in the book. Her name's Ada Lamone. She's mm -hmm. a poet. And I was fortunate to interview Ada for this book. And after she was in this book, she said that she would write for us. So she wrote a good dog column for the magazine. Mm. Um, and she is someone who grew up in New York and California and has grown to love Kentucky. Her husband moved them here. He's in the horse business. And she said that the greenery and the landscape and the calm of Kentucky has influenced her poetry and her writing more than anything else in her life. She feels like she can actually breathe. People say hi. She can chill. She can let her mind wander and dance and it's affected the way that she writes. And she's a National Book Award finalist poet, mm -hmm. and she's doing her work in Kentucky. So she is a huge inspiration to me. I really enjoy her work and what she's all about. Um, my favorite piece, and maybe I'll get to read a little bit of it, is in, in the whole book is the Mississippi poet Beth Ann Fennelly wrote an ode to Lucinda Williams. Lucinda Williams is one of my most favorite songwriters ever. I think her and... She and John Prine are probably two of my favorite musicians of all time and, and writers of all time. Mm -hmm. And Beth Ann Fennelly's Ode to Lucinda Williams is so kick-ass <laughs> and so funny. And she compares her to Pokeweed. Um, if you let me, I'll find a... I'll Go find right ahead. Okay. <laughs> we actually have a mural of John Prine here in Lexington. Hey, he's not a Southern woman. And he is not, <laughs> but... I'll have to send you over there so you can take a look at it. But that's a recent addition to the Lexington cityscape. Where is that? Uh, it's over on Leestown Road, which is an extension of Main Street. So it's a little ways from here, but um, it's on the side of, of a pizza place. 
So. Does John Prine spend a lot of time in Kentucky? I don't know that he specifically does. Of course, Paradise is about Kentucky, so we'll, uh, we're glad to claim whatever credit we can. Are you, did you find your? So here's Beth Ann Fennelly um, on Lucinda Williams. Listening to Lucinda, I'm not alone, and I'm not alone in feeling not alone listening to Lucinda. And then at the end, she brings it back to pokeweed. You have to get the book to read this whole thing. But she talks about pokeweed. One more thing about pokeweed. Straight from the ground, it's toxic. To make poke salad, you wash the leaves three times before cooking. And maybe there's a metaphor there. With seeming ease, but really decades of discipline and devotion, Lucinda has taken her poisons and applied fire, rendering them, and therefore, our own delicious. Very nice. I mean, that sells the book. For me. <laughs> there, there, there you I go. I just want to read yeah, that. <laughs> right. You, you think of how many copies you just sold by reading that. Where can folks pick this up? I guess it's available wherever fine books are sold. Wherever fine books are sold, um, online as well. Choose your favorite independent bookseller. Um, we also have all of the Garden and Gun books at gardeninggun.com. And this is, did you say your fifth, the fifth, fifth book? book? So we've got the cookbook and the Southerner's Handbook, the Good Dog book, which everyone loves the good dog stories, mm -hmm. and then the Southerner's Handbook. So this is number five. Okay. Do you have another one in planning stages? We don't specifically, but there's some ideas. Some ideas floating around. around. Um, okay. I actually wrote a, a, a separate, it's not a book, but I wrote a, trivia game, the Garden and Gun trivia game that okay. will be out next spring. So that's coming out as a sort of side project. That sounds fun. That'll be yeah, fun. There is plenty of Kentucky in there as Good. well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yes, there's, there's lots, of, uh, lots of interesting Kentucky facts out there. So how does someone from St. Louis end up in Charleston by way of Indiana University how do you end up at Charleston working for Garden and Gun? Well, it's not a bad place to end up, first of all. No, I don't. I think everybody, or at least me, and maybe it's maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I'm just trying to plot my course so I can, get to I, can Charleston. I can find a way to get to Charleston. Um, when I was, I've, I've always wanted to be an editor. I was editing my fourth grade colleagues' papers when I was a fourth grader. So I. I've always wanted to be a magazine editor, and when Garden and Gun launched in 2007, I was in college and I loved the magazine, and I was studying journalism at Indiana, and I just loved Garden and Gun. It was right when the Avett brothers were on the rise. It was right when people were really craving more craft and a slower pace of life and everything homespun. And I think Garden and Gun launched at a moment where people really craved that. Um, and we say, we joke that we kind of made Barnwood and Mason jars a little bit popular again, but then we've since kind of moved on from that look. Sure. So I, I was just always a huge fan of Garden and Gun. And then in college, I interned at Field and Stream Magazine oh, nice. in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it would be neat to just try to do a men's magazine and I have family from rural Missouri who hunt and fish and um, it just seemed like a better gig than a fashion magazine in New York so interned there and I actually called the editor 
who was friends with some of the editors at Field and Stream at Garden and Gun and said one day I'd like to work there. And then after college, I actually moved to Haiti and reported for the Associated Press after the earthquake oh, nice. there. Oh, that was, I'm sure, eye-opening. Very and... southern, far south. Yes. <laughs> but very yes. eye-opening and a beautiful, Absolutely. fascinating, historic country that actually, Haiti has a lot of ties to the south with the Caribbean um, and New Orleans mm-hmm. and a lot of Haitians. Um, I spent a lot of time in the south and there's just a huge link there. But then I briefly moved to New York and got the call to come interview at Garden and Gun, and that was in 2013, and I've been there ever since. I started yeah. as the research editor, finding different ideas, and now I'm the senior editor. I'm in charge of travel coverage, as well as I do a lot of um, garden coverage and a lot of books and food. Everybody wants food. We every, well, All of us cover food in some way. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and of course, you're on an Eat Kentucky podcast, so we're, we're yeah. going to talk some about that. <laughs> So that's how I, I got to Charleston, and um, I've got family in Florida and North Carolina, and so it's neat to be closer to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents have since left St. Louis and live in Florida as well, so I'm closer to them and yeah. love in Charleston. Well, Charleston's an easy place to love. Yes. I think it would be, once you got there, it would be awfully hard to leave, I would think. so. Well, we talked a little bit before... I hit the record button about grits because you just ate over at Weta Michaels Honeywood restaurant. Yep. She had, is it Weisenberger? Weisenberger, yes. And she made cheese grits and they were so good. I love everything Weta does, I have to say. <laughs> Weta is a recurring theme in this podcast and she was kind enough to be on an earlier episode as well. But I we, mean, she's so mean, you know, it's like... <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. People are always talking about how mean Weta That's That's right. She'll rough you up if you... Well, I, I, I will say I wouldn't want to get on her bad side, but she's always gracious and kind. Uh, I love the way she times. elevates her her staff whenever we've gotten to do events together I just love the way that she builds a community in her kitchen and is so real and present and she really gets to the heart of what food is all about in the south of community and love it. Weta has been one of the prime movers behind the culinary revival here in Lexington and mm-hmm. central Kentucky on a, as a whole not not just through her restaurants, which have set a standard, of course, but through mentoring a lot of people and encouraging people, as you've said, she's, she does that very well. And I think a lot of people look to her for what she does. One of the things that she likes to promote is Weisenberger, and uh, it's a local mill here in Kentucky. And so how, how were the grits? Creamy and delicious. And I'm curious if she cooks them in cream or if she's just doing water, because there's a big divide on mm-hmm. how, on any single factor about grits, there's a divide over how, how you should do it. From choosing them to the liquid to how you cook. Do you find that that divide regional? I mean, are there, depending on where you go, or is it just personal by cook? I think it's one of those cook by cook. Mm-hmm. things. Um, I chatted with Frank Stitt at Highlands Barn Grill and that grit souffle, the baked grits are very famous there and he was saying he would never cook grits in cream. That would be like cooking risotto with cream and so that's an affront. Mm-hmm. And then other people would swear by cream to make it creamier. So it's, it's really chef by chef. I think there's regional differences in terms of what grits you choose, if you're using yellow versus white or a 
special Jimmy Redcorn. There's that's near Charleston. Um, but I would say I've found that it's person to person how people cook them. I guess my background has always been with water, mm-hmm. but uh, and then anything that is to, to make it creamy is then added after. Yeah. So that I guess. I haven't been militant about that, but that's just sort of been my experience growing up. I think that's definitely the most common. And then one of the other cooking liquids besides water would be a a broth or a Mm -hmm. stock would be more common than cream for sure. Mm -hmm. But then after they've been cooked in the water, cheese, butter, cream, all of those are favorite things to add. Weisenberger has, of course, there's been, again, this revival of interest in places like that, authentic places like that. And they've gotten into local stores, I think, and have become more available to people. People like Weta have focused on them in their restaurants, and I think other places have, have as well. How have you found across the South in your research, how common are local mills like that? They're quite common I, in terms of places that have been there for a long time and are now kind of back in the spotlight. But I think there's actually some real honesty in people saying, when I grew up, we ate instant grits. Sure. Because I think there was a period where, we, you know, we all sort of romanticized my grandma and she, or my great grandma took this corn and milled it and she had grits. But for most of us, our parents or in our own childhoods, we ate instant or we mm-hmm. ate Quaker or right. not this artisanal locally milled grain. But there is this interest in it coming back because it's so delicious and because there's a story behind every place and it's so regionally specific. So I think that it's one of those foodways that's getting all this new attention and, and excitement because for a long time there was a, a gap in, in, in that locally made product. And of course in South Carolina you have Anson and Sean Brock has been a big advocate yep. of that and a pro- proponent of that. I think he's even, he's selling some from, uh, from Geechee, Ge- Geechee Boy, and right. it's funny, I was just talking to, to uh, John Smith, to, to Geechee Boy Mill folks, and anything that Sean Brock puts his name on sort of breaks the internet. Sure, <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes it does. Going through that right now of um, the, that Jimmy read, you know, there were only a few bags made, and then there was, apparently the website was down, so that's fun, it's fun to see that hunger for, for that specific grit that Sean Brock put his name on. But he also works a lot with Anson Mills and Anson Mills is sort of the, one of the great like granddaddies of, of the heritage grain movement in the Carolinas. And I guess their focus has really been on rice mm-hmm. to a large degree, but they're, do, they, do they have grits as well? They do have grits as well and, and cornmeal, but they also are known for their rice, the Carolina gold. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and Sean, yeah, Sean Brock is, Kind of single-handedly brought brought that back with his. I mean, obviously he didn't do all the work himself, but in in advocating for it, bringing it into his restaurants and right. and uh, helping it return from the brink of being lost forever. I think he's such a good champion of getting elemental about the southern ingredient mm-hmm. and figuring out. Let's tell a story about rice. Let's tell a story. I, I predict field peas are going to be the next thing that people get really excited about. And he and Sean Brock's been looking at field peas for a while. 
While we take a brief break, I wanted to tell you about my day job, and sometimes nights and weekends. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. When I'm not eating or posting about food, I help people find the home of their dreams in the Lexington area. If you need to buy or sell your home, please email, text, or call alancornett at kw.com or 859-327-1818. Now let's talk more about food. So you just published an interview with Sean Brock, and he is embracing his Appalachian roots again. He's got a group of restaurants coming out and opening in Nashville early next year, and the talk is that it will be focusing back on Appalachia, where he grew up in the mountains of Virginia. Um, but he was adamant that the Low Country shaped a lot of his cooking, and you know he really made his name in South Carolina. Right. So I'm sure there will be riffs on shrimp and grits, and I'm sure there will still be um, talk about all sorts of Southern food and the ways that have shaped him. But for right now, he wants to look back at the Appalachian food that raised him and some of his mother's dishes and that part of the world. There really has been a revival of interest in Appalachian food. I think it, I think unjustly for a long time was viewed sort of the, the poor cousin of maybe what was viewed as more sophisticated cuisines. But I think if you look at what Sean Brock did to more, I guess what we would say, common dishes in the low country, I think the same thing could, could be done. I think for Appalachian food, the, the, the ingredients, as it were, are there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that, too, if it'll be sort of elevating, in a way, like working man's food of a biscuit and, or a meat and three sort of thing, or, or I'm curious to know what it'll look like as well. It's going to be interesting. I've not had a chance to see his new book yet. I know he's doing a tour with that right now as we're, as we're recording, but uh, he has certainly had an extraordinary impact on Southern food and the way people view it and understand it. I think one of the things that's often overlooked about Sean Brock is he wasn't saying pork is king and biscuits and bourbon and I mean he's famously sober now but I think that Sean deserves a little more credit for all of the work that he's done with vegetables and grains which Mm -hmm. are at the heart of a lot of Southern cuisine that meat is actually sort of a special thing that occupies a smaller part of the plate. And Sean is really great with vegetables and a lot of Southern chefs who stand out are excellent with vegetables. I think so, and I think to have really true Southern cuisine, you have to have that emphasis on vegetables. And we've seen a lot of emphasis here with with the rebirth of farmers markets and locally produced uh, vegetables, and I, I, you know, that's that's a healthy thing in a whole lot of ways. I wasn't knocking barbecue either. I mean, uh, well, no, no. <laughs> we definitely still like our barbecue in Charleston. Absolutely. Are you uh, do you do you enjoy the mustard barbecue of Columbia? I, I like it. It's good. Okay. Um, I I do. I like Rodney Scott's though. I like that vinegar sauce on the pulled pork. I'm more of a vinegar person myself, but the, and of course I don't get to have the, the traditional Columbia 
mustard-based very often, but from my younger days, I would have it all along when I was in, in college. But um, we've got the holidays coming up. What traditions, and maybe particularly food traditions, for you make Thanksgiving Thanksgiving and Christmas Christmas? My parents pulled a fast one on us and became vegans 10 years ago. Oh. So the holidays have been a little different <laughs> for, with, with, with my immediate family. Um, something my mom does every holiday, or most holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving for sure. My mom is, was raised in Central Florida, so where a lot of citrus grows. And she always takes grapefruit, cuts it in half, drizzles honey on it and then broils that and every Thanksgiving and Christmas morning I can remember we would eat broiled grapefruit with honey and just kind of start our day have a little grapefruit start cooking so that's such a simple thing but I, I think um, that feels so simple and southern to me it's just fresh citrus when it's cold in most parts of the world mm -hmm. that's or at least in, in, in the south that's when the citrus is really ripe and that's when it's time to have some grapefruit. So do you usually, are you able to, to have Thanksgiving with your family? Or are you typically staying behind in Charleston? <laughs> I do. I go, my parents live in Central Florida now as well. So I usually go see them. I still have my grandparents. So they're, we're all together for that. Um, when I lived in New York, I saw the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I've sort of done, I would say our tradition is to not really have a tradition. We kind of bop around wherever. Mm -hmm family is at the moment. Well, but, but the tradition is that the family's together. Family is definitely together. Well, that's good. I did have a holiday question, which is a little bit, I guess, outdated right now because Halloween is past, but I have seen you reference a trick-or-treating tradition that you grew up with <laughs> that was not anything I had ever heard of. But tell me about that. Tell me about your, your childhood trick-or-treating I, I guess I'll call it an oddity, but to you it was perfectly normal. So I was 28 years old when I found out that something I grew up with was not everywhere. So in St. Louis, when you trick-or-treat, I grew up in a little town called Eureka right outside of St. Louis. When you trick-or-treat, you either have a joke or a skit or a little dance. You have to perform a trick for your treat. and. I wouldn't say that people are mean about it, but they answer the door and they're going to ask you for a joke. Everyone has to have a joke and it can be Halloween themed, it can be dumb. You just have to do something to work for you're, your camp. Right. You're not getting it for free. You're not getting it for free. So I didn't realize until I brought this up to friends that this doesn't happen everywhere. And I looked on Wikipedia and there's a specific entry on the trick or treat entry of Wikipedia. It says in St. Louis, <laughs> kids must perform a joke or a trick. And so it's very regionally specific. And I told my dad this. He was in his 60s at this point, And I said, did you know that not everywhere you have to give a joke? You have to say a joke. He's like, oh, maybe in Chicago they, do, they don't do that? I said, no, Dad, it's only in St. Louis <laughs> that you have to do this. So we were all adults by the time we learned this. So I am trying very hard to bring this tradition to, other to places. To spread it. Well, I can say I... I've been trick-or-treating with my kids multiple years in the Kansas City area, and that was, there was no <laughs> whiff of, of joke-telling 
anywhere there. So so it, it's pretty confined. Why do kids get it so easy everywhere else? No, I, I, I get making them work for it. I support that. I, I do wonder if it makes me mean or something, like that it's expected that they have to do something so, for it. So what, what measures have you taken to promote this? Uh, so I demanded that children tell me jokes <laughs> in Charleston. I sat out with some friends and handed out candy, and mostly I got confused looks. And then I, I got a, a few kids that didn't have jokes, but they're at that age where just the structure of a joke is funny. Right. So I had plenty of kids, like, totally just knock, knock, who's there? Peaches. Like, it wasn't funny at all, but just the structure of a joke cracked them up. So I sort of loved to watch the kids' brains try to come up with something because they were put on the spot by this random woman. You might need to do <laughs> maybe a sign by the door. Oh, to prep them. Right. Mm -hmm. Jokes expected. Mm -hmm. Okay. Something like maybe like a that. week ahead of time. Well, maybe, yeah, you could even do that. You could, you know, you could start Get putting, ready. you could do, you could do flyers around the neighborhood. Get your jokes ready. Get your jokes I ready. Mean, if, or avoid this house. So soon Wikipedia. <laughs> will be expanded that it's St. Louis and and a specific block in Charleston. Okay, I mean, that would be probably my <laughs> proudest achievement. <laughs> I think it's worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile, but uh, sadly for some reason we we're on a we're on a block where no kids ever come. So oh, my no. <laughs> I know and we're you know we've got the pumpkins out, we've got the lights on and and so nobody the secret comes. is the king size candy bars. If you do that one year then everyone Then everybody them. comes back. Remember. That's right. I saw that you did a an article sometime back about a book called What We Keep. Oh yeah. And it was about objects that people treasure, not necessarily valuable yeah. objects. Do you have something that you keep? I do, and this ties back to that great grandmother Opal I mentioned. Um, and I, I wrote this in the lead to that piece, but she, b before she died, and she was in her mid-90s when she died, she uh, gave me her opal wedding ring. So it's a tiny little stone, and she had outlived, I believe, four husbands, and she couldn't remember which husband <laughs> gave her this tiny opal wedding <laughs> ring. And I thought it was so sweet, and um, she gave it to me. I was her only, um, no, I was, I, we have a small family, but, she looked at me and she couldn't see if I was the boy or the girl, <laughs> me or my brother. And um, she gave me her little opal wedding ring. So that's a precious little thing that mm -hmm. I keep. Very much. It reminds me of my family. It reminds me of um, the women in my life. And, and I like that it's simple and it's nothing fancy. So looking back through your archive, and I will link your, your Garden and Gun archive in show notes, I also saw that you had an article on making poorer man's pappy. So are you, uh, oh, yeah. do, you uh, do you do a lot of bourbon blending is, you in know, your spare time? Our readers love bourbon, and our readers have very strong opinions about bourbon. I'm not surprised. So while I'm not going to claim to be an expert tinkerer or blender, if I see an interesting bourbon story that will raise opinions, even strong bad opinions, I'm going to think about how to cover that because I want our readers to be engaged and to find something interesting. So that article is from this book, Hacking Whiskey. Mm -hmm. I love that book. I think the photography is really funny and there's like burnt out cigarette butts in the way that it's not a lush, beautiful barnwood book. It's this really cheeky book about whiskey and bourbon. Um, 
he found, you know, there's poor man's pappy that people talk about, and this is a different version because right. poor man's pappy. poor man's pappy because the two bottles that he recommended for or that had been recommended for poor started selling out and no one could find them so it was about mixing it to have that weeded bourbon taste and there are such i actually was just looking at reddit the other day to see people still comment on that article and say that it's idiotic and i i, I think it's great when people have those strong of opinions because sure. First of all, they're clicking on the article, right? And it's it's not meant to be clickbait. It's meant to start a discussion. Can you really make something as good as Pappy by blending? Can you is is Pappy elevated just because it's Pappy? Is Pappy you know? So so all those discussions I think are wonderful that people are having. And if there's something that's going to be a hot button issue about bourbon, we'll try to talk about right. it because it's fun. Well, and Pappy is a hot button issue, of course. As you and I are talking, it is bourbon hunting season here in central Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So um, I think Pappy is about to drop here soon. So who knows what sort of insanity can happen in Lexington when that happens. People will be bourbon hunting. They will be bourbon hunting and waiting in long lines and going to raffles and that sort of thing. So I'm sure the best are, I'm sure it's a committed lifestyle to getting... And the old dusties and all of that. I'm sure it's a full-time right. focus. I, I think it is for a lot of people. And it's, in central Kentucky, obviously, it's, it's amped up to an nth degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just uh, because, because the distilleries are such a presence here. Right. And bourbon tourism has really taken off. Mm-hmm. And I think they're really just scratching the surface of it. So... Buffalo Trace, where they make Pappy, is adding multiple new warehouses. They're building, they're spending something like a billion dollars, something crazy building and expanding. So their hope is, obviously, that that's not going to, the hype's not going to end. So so Garden and Gun should have some more things to cover. (laughs) They'll even have, they'll have poorest man's Pappy, I guess, come out. I think it's, it's funny because including Kentucky and covering Kentucky, it's like our first instincts as editors are what's going on in the horse world and what's going on in the bourbon world. And I, I actually worry that we silo ourselves a little bit too much and just, we love horses, we love bourbon, but I think that there are stories to tell in Kentucky beyond that, that we as editors need to make sure we're doing a good job of looking into. And, and I, that's sort of a call to people to let me know other ideas. I, I, there's a gardener I love, a landscape architect, Joseph Hillenmeyer, who has this neat Christmas shop, and he has beautiful gardens that he works on. And I love stories like that that show just all the beautiful things happening in Kentucky. There's a lot going on, and obviously, horses and bourbon are are the signature industries uh, as far as that goes. But there really is a lot going on, and it's hard to separate everything from those, but if you, it's, it's also easy for those things to overshadow a lot of things. Right. And I'm hoping that while this podcast may cover some of those uh, premier issues as well, that we touch on some lesser known, shine lights on lesser known things. Like your Appalachia, I mean, your own Absolutely. background. That's part of Kentucky as well. Yes, very much. And, and there are some episodes coming up 
to uh, to bring some of that to light too. I hope. And a Southern woman, Loretta Lynn. I mean, that's her. Yes, that's she's from, from too. She she is very much a mountain girl. So, <laughs> I and and grew up not in the Kentucky. Kentucky's very county oriented. She didn't grow up in the same county as I did, but it's very similar. Mm-hmm. And people where I grew up came out of the haulers and they were coal miners and grew tobacco and you know coal coal mining and tobacco are not growth industries these days and so it's it's hit uh, those areas pretty hard and uh, but I think there is there are tremendous human and natural resources there and I think that hopefully people like Sean Brock can help shine some light you know, there too. a chef I love in Kentucky over in Paducah is um, Sarah Bradley at Freight House. I've heard of her. That yes. So growing up in St. Louis, and uh, my dad's a golfer, and he would play a tournament near Paducah. So I'm sorry, I used to go to Paducah. But that part of the state, I think, is also a, one that has a lot of little gems to be discovered. And she's, she's doing a really neat job. She has this amazing bourbon collection that we've written about, and uh, she's doing a lot of really neat vegetable-forward dishes. In talking about the diversity of the South, Kentucky has obviously wide diversity too. Eastern Kentucky, where I'm from, is very different from Lexington, but all of that's also very different from far Western Kentucky, where Paducah is, because it's a lot, of course, Kentucky narrows down pretty pretty narrow down there, but it's a lot like Western Tennessee, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of there between Memphis and St. Louis, and those are more of the metropolis mm-hmm. influences there, metropolitan influences there, rather than Louisville and Lexington, right. or even Cincinnati, where you have Northern Kentucky. So it's, uh, there's a lot that goes on out there, I think, that probably is overlooked. Mm-hmm. Just, it takes a long time to get to Paducah from here, mm-hmm. but, but it's certainly worth exploring, I know. I have a good friend from Paducah who lives here in Lexington who's constantly telling me that I've got to go to Paducah with him. It is charming. There's that quilt Mm -hmm. museum there, and there's really cool art, and the buildings are neat. I mean, I I think Paducah is really cute, and I think it's neat to see all those different points of Kentucky that you mentioned, like how much there is going on within one state. It's sort of like we were talking earlier about the South has so many different Souths within it, Mm -hmm. and I think each state is can say it has that same story. Absolutely, and. Hopefully we can tell some of those stories as well. So before we sign off, tell me what you've been listening to lately. You music or podcasts or what? Well, you you flew up today. What did you have a you have a travel playlist? I listen to I love Casey Musgraves. I just saw her live in Charleston. She was wonderful. I'm a huge Van Morrison fan. I listen to a lot of Van Morrison, old school. Um, it's funny, I work in words so much that I have a hard time listening to podcasts <laughs> sometimes. But I, I, this one accepted, of <laughs> course. I always listen to this one. Gardening Dennis <laughs> had a podcast before called The Whole Hog um, Podcast. And, I, and I, so I listen to podcasts a little bit, but I do find myself listening to music a little more um, in my non-writing and word time. Understandable. <laughs> I like that I said I work in words, and the way I described it was word time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I am editor. Um, so yeah, a lot of um, Casey Musgraves. I, I 
been enjoying um, Ranky Tanky. They're a really neat Charleston-based band that has a lot of Gola influences, and they are awesome. Um, their lead singer is in the Southern Women book. Lucinda Williams, John Prine, gotta go see that mural. Um, yeah, that's what I'm listening to. All right, sounds good. So where can folks find you online? My Instagram is cjlotes, C-J-L-O-T-Z, and then at Garden and Gun, search for my name or just go on our website. We'll be, it's, it's so fun at Garden and Gun, the number of things we get to talk about and write about, and you'll see that as writers, we're interested in so many different topics, so it's not like I just do books or food. We all do a whole bunch of things. It's the it's the most fun magazine I know. It's always Whoa. yeah. It's always there's always something in Garden and Gun to read, and um, so I'm very glad to be able to sit down and talk with you. In the I next, appreciate it. In the next issue, I've got the grits piece that I mentioned, big grits piece, and then a piece about the camellias at Avery Island where Tabasco is made. Oh, so okay. a plant piece, but um, so that that's the February March issue of Garden okay. and Gun and. Mm. I'm saying that, but I still have to finish writing them. So sort of <laughs> charged. Well, I hope I hope Kentucky Grits make a make at least a cameo in that discussion. You'll have to check out the issue, but I think your Absolutely. forecaster is is looking pretty good. All right. Well, well, very good. Well, enjoy your time in the bluegrass. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for being uh, willing to sit down with me and squeezing me into your schedule. It's so great to chat with you. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Thanks. You can find links to CJ's Instagram and Garden and Gun article archive in show notes. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I am a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.